The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. By looking at what Jesus is referred to here in this passage, by also seeing what kind of response we have to him, and then lastly, by looking at the results which follow. So let me read verses 4 through 10 before we look at it into, in, in more detail, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Well, the first thing I want us to notice about this passage is what Jesus is described as over and over and over again. He's the subject of this entire passage. He's the Lord in verse 3 that believers taste of, and he is the him there in verse 4 that every believer comes to. That means that here in this passage, he is described over and over and over again as a rock. Hopefully you saw that as we read this passage. In verse 4, he is called a living stone. In verse 6, he is called a stone and a cornerstone chosen and precious. In verse 7, he is called the stone and the cornerstone. And in verse 8, he is called a stone and a rock. So that's a lot of descriptions concerning our Lord and Savior as a rock. So the big question is, what does that mean? Why is Christ here described as a rock, as a stone, as a cornerstone? Well, first, I think these titles show us that Jesus is God. Often in Scripture, God is referred to in rock-like terms, especially in the Old Testament. So listen to just some of these passages. In Deuteronomy 32.4, he is called the rock. In 2 Samuel 23.3, he is called the rock of Israel. In Psalm 89.26, he is called the rock of my salvation. In Isaiah 17.10, he is called the rock of your refuge. In fact, in Isaiah 26 verse 4, it says this, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Well, this is very similar terminology to what we find here in 1 Peter chapter 2 describing Christ as this living stone. So I think all of these titles proclaim to us, first and foremost, that
that Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the everlasting rock. But secondly, these titles are also used referring to Christ to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. The Old Testament predicts and promises that God would send his Messiah or his anointed one into the world. He would do this in the fullness of time by having him born a Jew in the nation of Israel. Well, another way of stating this is found in what Peter says in verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Well, the Messiah, he is that cornerstone. He is that stone. He is this strong stone that, that God would send from heaven, throw from heaven, and be firmly established in Israel in order to shepherd and to support and to save his people from their sins. He would be this foundational cornerstone who would be the place of God's special dwelling on earth, a place where God would dwell near and draw near to his people and God's people would draw near to him. That's why Peter, I think, quotes all of these Old Testament passages here, specifically in verses six through eight, because they were speaking to us all about Christ. Now we'll see this in more detail in just a little bit. But the passages that he quotes from, Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, 22, and Isaiah 8, 14, are all passages which describe the sufferings and subsequent glories of the Messiah. So Peter tells us that this living stone, this everlasting rock, this chosen and precious cornerstone, this glorious Messiah that God would send into the world as a man born in Israel is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So according to his deity, he is the everlasting God, the everlasting rock of Israel. And according to his humanity, he is the long-awaited Messiah. So that's how Christ is described in this passage, as a rock to tell us that he is both God and also that he is the Messiah. But notice secondly in this passage how people respond to this rock. Jesus is the rock, but people respond to him in a couple different ways. The fact is you cannot be neutral to Jesus the rock. He is like a giant fork in the road. So when you encounter him, you can't keep going down the same path you were once walking. You either turn to the right or you turn to the left, but your path is forever changed once you encounter this great rock we call Christ. I think Peter is clear about this in this passage. He first tells us here how people respond positively to Jesus Christ. He says in verse three, that some taste of his goodness. And in verse four, some come to him. And in verses six through seven, some believe in him. But Peter also tells us that there are those who respond negatively to Christ. He says in verse four and in verse seven, they reject him. In verse seven, they do not believe in him. And in verse eight, they disobey the word about him. So we should all learn this from what Peter is telling us here. When we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will respond in one or two ways. 
we will either by faith come to him or in unbelief we will reject him. You will either believe in him or you will not believe in him. You will either obey the gospel message about him or you will disobey it. You either see him as the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation or you will see him as folly. You will either smell him as the fragrance from life to life or smell him as the fragrance of death to death. You will either treat him as precious or you will treat him as profane. There is not a third option. There is no middle position. You cannot sit on the fence when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. You either love him or you hate him. So as the Bible tells us, choose this day whom you will serve. Either serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and soul or serve the idols of this world. Bow down to this majestic mountain or serve the little pebbles underneath your feet. But either way, you must respond when you come into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. But also know this, your response to the Lord Jesus Christ matters. There are major, major consequences for what you do with this Savior. Peter tells us here that you either stand upon this rock or you stumble over it. And those actions lead to two totally different outcomes. So let's look at this next. Third, notice from this passage what this living stone does to people. And first, let's consider what this living stone does for those who stand upon this rock. For those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For those sort of people, he is the stone of salvation. In verse 7, Peter says that great honor is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, there's some English translations that read, to you who believe, he is precious. Meaning, believers perceive that Jesus Christ, the living stone, is a costly stone, a precious stone, a valuable, one-of-a-kind stone. Something that we looked at this morning, Jesus as the pearl of great price. Now, that is certainly true. Christ is precious to all the saints. He is the crown jewel of heaven. His person is precious. His blood is precious. His gospel is precious. His salvation is precious. His kingdom is precious. Communion with him is precious. And the thought of being with him forever in glory is precious. But I actually think this verse should read, to you who believe, the honor is precious. For you, meaning no matter what the world says about you, no matter what the world thinks about you, no matter what the world does to you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, honor and blessing and glory are yours and no one will take that away from you. The honor is for you. And in this passage, I think Peter tells us four wonderful blessings Every believer in Christ receives by standing on Christ the precious rock. So I want us to look at these four blessings one at a time. And hopefully, brethren, this will be an encouragement to your soul just to glory in the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done 
for you. So first, Christ constructs us into the new temple of God. He constructs us into the new temple of God. Peter begins verse 5 by saying this, As you come to him, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. I want you to see two things about what Christ does to believers here. First, he places them on a solid foundation. Christ has made every believer in Christ something absolutely wonderful. Christ here is the living stone, and by his power and grace, he has made every believer in Christ a living stone as well. A living stone. He imparts to us eternal life so that we're no longer dead and lifeless stones, but we are living stones that will never perish. This is because he is the chosen and precious and everlasting cornerstone. And because he is this, he has placed us upon himself. So we get power and we get life from resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. We rest on top of him. He is our Savior who sustains us and holds us together and keeps us from falling apart. We are firmly established upon him. So Christ is the anchor of our souls. We're placed on a solid foundation, this great cornerstone that shall not be moved. But secondly, we're not only placed on him, but we're built up upon him. He builds us up into this glorious structure. Jesus is not only the cornerstone we rest upon, he is also the master builder who takes us stone by stone and builds us up as a beautiful spiritual house. That's what Peter says. We are a spiritual house. Now, what is this spiritual house that Christ makes us into? I think he's just simply speaking about the house or the temple of God. Peter is telling us here that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the living spiritual temple where the holy and eternal God resides. In some ways, we're like the Old Testament temple and the tabernacle where God's Shekinah glory dwelt, but we are so much better than that Old Testament temple. That Old Testament temple was made up of physical stones but we read about that temple being brought down to the ground because of Israel's sinfulness. We read about it in Ezekiel chapter 23, but you read about it over and over and over again in the prophets that that temple, Solomon's temple was coming down. And even Herod's temple came down in AD 70. But we know the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as the spiritual temple of God will never be brought down to the ground. We are the new temple of God of God. King Jesus has perfectly fit us together to be God's dwelling place on earth. But we're not made out of dead, lifeless stones. We are living stones that make up a living house that will never crack, never crumble, and never fall to pieces because, again, we are built upon the solid foundation of the living stone himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are this living house. We are this spiritual house, not made with human hands, but remade by the hands of God who caused us to be born again 
and who fills us with his glorious presence. So we rest upon Christ, our solid rock, but we're also built up by Christ to be a holy dwelling place for the Lord. What Peter says here is very similar to what the Apostle Paul actually says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Let me read that, and hopefully you can make the connections yourself. The Apostle Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Christ constructs us into the new temple of God. But secondly, he also consecrates us into the new priesthood of God. Look at the second half of verse 5. Peter gives us here the reason or the purpose of, of why God makes us into living stones and, and builds us one on, on top of each other to be made into this spiritual house. He says that all of these hap- things happen so that we might be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus makes us his temple in order to make us his priests. We're not just a temple. We are also a priesthood of believers. We're like the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. Remember that this group of people were separated from all the rest of the Israelites to serve God in his tabernacle and temple. They were to maintain and lead the corporate worship of God. They were the ones who made the sacrifices They were the ones who cleaned the utensils. They were the ones who guarded the entryway into God's dwelling place. And they were the ones to make sure that God was worshiped according to his word. They were also the ones who mediated God's blessings to his covenant people. They were the ones who studied and taught the word of God. They prayed for the people. They pronounced God's blessing upon the people. In everything they did, they represented the people before God. Well, brethren, Christ has made every single Christian into this holy priesthood. In fulfillment of Isaiah 61, verse 6, we are all called the priests of the Lord and the ministers of our God. And we are part of a better priesthood than that Levitical priesthood. Our Savior was part of a better priesthood. He was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood lasts forever because he continues forever. And his once for all sacrifice for us consecrates us and qualifies us as priests forever as well. Because Christ has washed us with his precious blood, the Bible says we are completely cleansed and sanctified. The blood of Jesus Christ enables us to draw near to God in worship. It empowers us to serve God in this world And by the blood of Christ, we can offer to God not bloody animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices of thanksgiving, sacrifices of praise, and sacrifices of devotion to him. So we're constructed into the new temple of God. We're also consecrated as the new priesthood of God.
But third, Christ constitutes us into the new Israel of God. I think we see that in verses 9 through 10. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, Peter here either quotes or alludes to three important Old Testament texts here. Those Old Testament texts are Exodus 19, verse 6, Isaiah 43, verses 20 through 21, and Hosea 2, verse 23. Now, the interesting thing about all these passages is that they originally referred to the ethnic nation of Israel. Exodus 19, 6 was spoken to the nation after the Exodus and right before they became God's covenant people. This is what the Lord says to the Israelites. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that was spoken before they became the covenant people of God. But Isaiah 43 and Hosea 2 were spoken to the nation at the time of the exile when they were about to lose their status as God's covenant people because of their sins. Yet God promises here that he would make them his people once again. In Isaiah 43 verses 18 through 21, the Lord says this, remember not the former things nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. And then in Hosea verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, the Lord says, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. Well, Peter takes all of these passages found in the Old Testament, originally Uh, written to the people of Israel and he applies them here to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he's saying that these promises that God originally made to Israel find their fullest and ultimate fulfillment in the church. That Jesus has brought together both Jew and Gentile and constituted us as the new covenant people of God. The new Israel of God, that we have been redeemed out of spiritual Egypt and we have been brought home from spiritual exile by the work of Jesus Christ. Because of his obedience and blood, Peter tells us that we are this new group of people in five different ways. First, he tells us here that we are a chosen race, taken out of the cursed race of Adam and brought into the redeemed race of Christ. 
He tells us that we are royal priesthood separated from the world to serve and worship the holy king of the universe. He tells us we are a holy nation made up of a people from all over the world who've been taken out of the world and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Fourth, he tells us we're God's special possession among all the peoples of the earth to proclaim the excellent work of Christ who brought us out of darkness and to the light of his grace and eternal life. And fifthly, he tells us that we are God's people all by his mercy and all by his grace. Well, these are the blessings that come to those who stand upon Jesus Christ as the rock of salvation. But there's also a final blessing Peter mentions concerning those who come to Christ and believe in him. And it's found in the last part of verse six. Jesus keeps us from becoming confounded. In verse six, Peter quotes the Greek version of Isaiah chapter 28, verse six, which says, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So whoever believes in this precious and chosen cornerstone that God has laid in Zion will not be put to shame or will not be confounded. So when trouble comes, believers do not need to panic or flee or melt in fear. Believers can stand their ground. Believers can remain stable and steadfast. This is because the stone of Israel is our sure and strong refuge. He guarantees our safety in any and every storm that we might face in this life. Because Christ Jesus will never be moved. God's purpose will never fail. God's promises will never go unfulfilled. And God's people will never be disappointed. Not now, not later, and certainly not in the day of judgment. We rest secure in Christ. We do not need to be confounded because we stand upon the solid rock of our salvation. So these are just some of the honorable and glorious blessings that we receive if we come to Christ and respond to the message of the gospel in a positive way. We are uh, constructed into the new temple of God. We are consecrated as the new priesthood of God. We shall never, ever be confounded, and we are constituted as the new Israel of God. These are all blessings for us in Jesus Christ to appreciate and to embrace and to glory in. This has nothing to do with us. This has everything to do with our Savior who came into this world and won salvation on our behalf. So brethren, let's glory in these things. But not everybody, again, responds positively to the message of the gospel. Sadly, there are those who reject it. So let's secondly look at what happens to those who stumble over this rock. Some of us stand upon it. Others stumble. And for those who stumble over this rock, Jesus Christ is not the stone of salvation, but Jesus Christ is the stone of judgment to them. Peter tells us that rejecting Christ is the worst possible thing you could ever do to yourself. The worst thing. He basically tells us here that not believing in Christ is a dumb or foolish choice. It is a dangerous choice and it's a deadly choice. And I think we see that from the three Old Testament passages that Peter quotes here. 
Now, originally, these passages speak about the dishonor and shame that would come to unfaithful Israelites who broke covenant with Yahweh. But in the New Testament, we see these passages used with a broader audience in mind. Jesus applies them to the scribes and Pharisees who opposed his ministry. Paul applies them in the book of Romans to the unbelieving Jews who rejected his gospel. And Peter here applies them universally to any and all who refuse to come to Christ for salvation. So let's look at these three passages now. First, it's a, it's a dumb or a foolish choice to reject Jesus Christ. We see that from Psalm 118. In verse 7, Peter says, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, this is an Old Testament quotation. It's found, it's found in Psalm 118, verse 22. Now, throughout this psalm, the psalmist is praising God for his salvation and deliverance from his enemies. The psalmist is in distress. Enemies are surrounding him on every side, pressing in so hard upon him that he felt like he was falling. But the psalmist praises God for his goodness, praises God that God has been on his side. God has been his help. God has upheld him and strengthened him. God has saved him with his righteous right hand. God is the one who has delivered him from death. God is the one who has given him victory over all those who hate him. God is the one who cuts off his enemies, brings them Uh, brings him through the gates of the righteous, makes him the cornerstone all on a special day that he has made, a day of deliverance and salvation. So that's what Psalm 118 is all about. God has saved the psalmist. He has made him the cornerstone. He has done this all on a special day. And this is a cause for great gladness and rejoicing. Well, this Psalm, Psalm 118, is ultimately speaking about what God did to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when confronting the Pharisees and applies it to himself. Remember, these religious leaders, they rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They hated him. They surrounded him in order to kill him. But God saved his son from death by raising him from the dead on a special day that he had made. And God gave him victory over all of his enemies by making him once and for all the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone forever. And there is nothing any of his enemies can do about it. They can mock him. They can scorn him. They can gnash their teeth at him. They can plan and scheme against him. But it is all in vain because Christ still stands as the cornerstone. I think the point of all this is there is no honor in rejecting Jesus Christ because it doesn't change the fact about who he is and what God the Father has done for him. If you don't believe in Christ, it doesn't make Christ unreal. Some people think they can do that. If they just push Christ out of their mind or if they don't believe in Jesus, then he'll just go away. He's not real. They treat him like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. But he is the living stone. He is the cornerstone. He is the everlasting rock, no matter what you think about him and no matter what you say to him. You can't change the fact that God has raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. 
You can mock him. You can blaspheme him. You can hate him. You can not believe in him. You can rebel against him. But all of that doesn't change the fact of the gospel. And it doesn't change what he's doing in the world either. God has laid this stone in Zion and this stone is going nowhere. Christ is risen from the dead. Christ has entered eternal life. Christ is enthroned on high. He is in a place of absolute authority and everlasting blessedness. And in fact, this stone is not just in Zion any longer. It's growing. It's expanding. It's going to the utter ends of the earth. Christ is building his church and filling this world with his glory. And there is nothing that wicked men or the devil can do about it. So if you're not a Christian here this evening, you need to stop your futile attempts at fighting against Christ. It's foolish to do so. He's the Savior. He's risen from the dead. He has all authority in heaven on earth, and he is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. There is nothing you can do about that. Fighting against him is like taking a Nerf gun and shooting Nerf gun bullets at Mount Everest. You think that mountain's going to move at all? No, it remains unaffected because it's futile to do so. So it's futile, it's foolish, it's dumb to reject Jesus Christ. But secondly, it's dangerous to reject Jesus Christ. This is implied in Peter's quotation of Isaiah chapter 28 in verse 6. For those who believe in the chosen and precious cornerstone that God laid, they will not be shaken or put to shame. But here's the question. What will happen to those who do not believe in this rock and who do not stand upon this rock? Right? For those who stand upon him, they will not be confounded. But for those who are not standing upon him, what's going to happen to them? Well, they're on unstable ground. God says in Isaiah 28 that he's going to send a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, a storm of mighty overflowing waters. And if you're not standing upon this rock, you have no lasting refuge or shelter. Christ the rock is the only source of security, stability, and salvation in this world, and especially in the world to come. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So when the rains fall and the floods come and the wind blows and the judgment falls upon our heads, what will happen to you? What hope of safety do you have in the day of judgment? How will you stand before the holy God on that day if you are not standing upon Christ the solid rock? You see, rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is a dangerous, dangerous choice because it leaves you with no protection, no covering, no safety, not only from the trials of this life, but especially from the judgment to come. It's a dangerous choice to reject Jesus Christ. But third and finally, it's a deadly choice to reject Christ. You might walk away from Jesus Christ and reject him as the stone of salvation. But he's not going to leave you alone. This stone will come after you. Again, some people think, ah, I don't need Jesus. (laughs) 
I'm just going to walk away from the gospel. I'm going to walk away from Christ. And again, he'll just kind of leave me alone. No, he will not leave you alone. He will not leave you alone. You can leave the church. You can leave the Bible behind. You can lock it away. You can tear it up. You can throw it in the trash. But Jesus Christ will not leave you alone. If you reject his salvation, you will receive his judgment. And Peter tells us this in verse 8 when he says that for those who don't believe, Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, this is a a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. In this chapter, Isaiah prophesies doom and destruction upon the Israelites. God promises to be with his faithful remnant. They will not be destroyed. He will become a sanctuary to them. He will protect them and bless them and save them. But for all the unfaithful Israelites, they will be destroyed. At the time of this prophecy, they were walking in in an evil way by not fearing the Lord, by not inquiring of the Lord, by seeking counsel not from the word of God, but from mediums and necromancers and putting their trust not in God, but in foreign nations. To them, God would become a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, a trap, and a snare. They would stumble upon God. They would fall and be broken. They would trip and be thrust into thick darkness. Well, for all who do not trust in Christ, the same thing will happen to you. Peter is telling us here that if you are offended at Christ, if you reject him, you will be destroyed. This stone will not be a smooth stone for you, but it will be a stone full of sharp, jagged edges that will cause you to trip up upon it, stumble, and this, fall, this rock will fall right on top of you. Then it's all over. Jesus actually quotes this very verse in Matthew chapter 21, verse 44, and he says this, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Literally, he says, it will grind you into powder. So this crushing blow of the Lord Jesus Christ is so severe that if you do not believe in him, one day you will vainly cry out for literal mountains and rocks to fall upon you to hide you from the wrath of the Lamb. Right? You would rather have literal rocks and mountains fall upon you than to have the wrath of the Lamb to fall upon you for all eternity. So it's a deadly choice to reject Jesus Christ. If you are offended at him, he will become a stone of stumbling to you and this stone will fall heavily upon you for all eternity. So if you respond to the gospel message in any other way than believing it, you are not smart, you are not safe, and you will not be saved. Christ is a rock that will offend you, a stone that will cause you to stumble, and a mountain that will strike you, grind you to power, powder, and bury you in the pits of hell forever. That's a scary place to be, friend. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, this should scare you to death. Wonderful blessings for those who stand upon the rock of salvation. Horrible curses for those who reject him. 
Well, in conclusion, we have seen how Jesus is a great rock. So the great question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we standing on this rock or are we stumbling over him? Stand upon him and he will make you a living stone in God's temple, a priest in God's house, a citizen in God's kingdom, and one who will never be put to shame. But if you stumble over him and you are walking away from his salvation and you willingly place yourself under his wrath and judgment. Just remember this, Jesus will either be your savior or he will be your judge. He can grant you eternal life or sentence you to eternal death. He can forgive you of all of your sins or he can condemn you for all of your sins. He can build you up or he can tear you down. Let me just make one final plea for those who are outside of Christ. You should praise God right now that you are not crushed by his almighty power just yet. Christ has not grinded you to powder. You are still alive. You still have breath in your nostrils. You can still hear the message of the gospel. You still have time to repent of your sins and believe in Christ before it's too late. So the urgent message to you now is stop waiting. (laughs) Reject Jesus Christ no more. Disobey his gospel message no more. Stay away from him no more. Flee to Christ and find safety in him. Hide yourself in him. Stand upon him and you will be saved. He is a mighty rock. Honor him as that. Weighty and glorious and powerful. See him for who he truly is. And come to him. Because he is a rock of refuge for all of those who hide themselves in him. Those friends, based on this passage, may we all say with genuine faith and full conviction, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how the the apostle Peter weaved together so many Old Testament passages into this a small passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 and how it teaches us so much about the Lord Jesus Christ as this great and mighty and awesome rock. We thank you so much for those who uh, trust in Christ, that we're standing upon Christ, that he is our solid rock. He is our cornerstone. He is the source of our salvation and eternal life. We give you thanks and praise for this. But we pray for those who are outside of Christ, who have stumbled over this rock, who are offended at Christ, who have rejected him time and time and time again. We pray that you would give them a conviction of their sins. We pray, Lord, that you would cause them to be scared and fearful of the wrath and judgment to come, that they would see Jesus Christ as this mighty rock hanging over their heads, ready to crush them and grind them in powder at any moment. May you have mercy upon them, God. And may you cause them and grant them repentance, repentance unto life and saving faith to run and flee to this mighty Savior and find their refuge only in him. Oh Lord, may you continue to glorify yourself in the salvation of sinners and in the building up of your church here at this place. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. 
For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.